So uh, last time, just a reminder, we looked at just only two verses in verses two to the first line of verses three. Okay, um, and last time, what we saw is really I think the section in verses one to eight is just the idea um, before even getting to judgment, God's judgment of Nineveh. I actually think verses one to eight is about God's judgment, or actually verses two to eight is God's judgment over um, everything and, uh, and about His global judgment. And it's in light of the fact that God will have a global judgment, then there will be one specifically for address towards Nineveh. Okay, if that makes sense. Um, the way I structured this is the, what we saw last week was we need to know God will judge sins because of his attributes. Okay. And this is, this is after Jonah, right? Yes, this is after Jonah. This is 100 okay. years is after. Is like a generation after or something like that? Or? Uh, I think it might be even a bit more, okay, with that. But a generation at least. With that, okay. Um, so we see here, uh, we need to know God will judge sin because of his attributes. This is what we saw last week. If you guys remember the five different attributes we saw in verses two to three, but now from this point on, we're gonna see, uh, we need to know there's two more points for today, okay. We need to know God has the power to judge with his power over nature, with his power over nature, okay. So, um, this is gonna be focused in verses three. Second half to verses five, okay, that uh, he has a power to judge over nature is our so really uh, that's the uh, second point, which is really our first point for today, um, and also we need to know God has a power to judge with his powers over humans, okay, over human beings, okay. This is in verses six to eight, okay, um, verses six to eight. So when we look at this, um, when we look at this. Um, what we see, what we see going on here is, um, again, two points for today. Uh, we're going to see the emphasis is really about God's power. Do you guys remember last week we talked about there is a difference between authority and power? Do you guys remember this? There's a, people could confuse it all the time. People often confuse if someone has a power, they have the authority to do something. But I would actually say there's a difference. And one of the analogies I, I, I even gave to my um, daughters recently, uh, actually uh, yesterday when I was teaching them about the, um, I was re- going through with my daughters on the London Baptist uh, Catechism, or um, and when we were going, or a uh, confession, and when we were going through this in chapter one, I was just making the distinction about God's word is authority, but what's the difference between authority and power? And I gave the example, just to show the difference between authority and power, is I think every child, if they're under 18, or, or if they're a child still, is under the authority of who? Under the authority of their father. Okay? When they're living in their home, the father's uh, under the home of the father, they're still under the authority of the father. But I gave the example. Um, just say, for example, there's a father. There's a man who became a father at 65. There's a man who became a father at 65. 65, is that young or old to be a father? That's quite old, okay? I do have a friend who's a pastor, by the way, who became a father at 50, okay? But here's a more extreme example. He's 65. And let's just say when his son, who he had a son at 66, when his son became uh, 14, how old is his How old is his dad? When the son became 14, you know, uh, let's just say 65, 66 plus 14 is what? 80 years old. Okay, when the son is uh, 14 years old, the dad is 80 years old. 
Now, let me ask you guys this question. Can it be possible in some ways that the son might even be more stronger and powerful than the dad at 14? Could it be possible? Okay. There's some 14-year-olds that could be really strong. Okay. Um, and he might be even more powerful than his dad. But does that mean he has authority over his dad just because he has the power? The answer is no. Okay. And moreover, even if the dad is far weaker, the dad still has authority over the son, even though the son might be physically be more stronger. So I bring this up as a show. There's the distinction between power and authority. However, unfortunately, oftentimes people could confuse those two categories, especially people that are what? Wicked and very sinful. And when you think about a country like Nineveh, when you think about a city uh, state like Nineveh with the Syrian em uh, Empire, people could think, oh, because I have might, therefore I have or I have a uh, right to something. OK, where this might makes right, where the idea of just sheer power means you have the authority o over something is problematic. So. So and then they would not respect someone that would be like, for instance, 80 years old, but must uh, morally has a duty or an obligation to have authority. Right. But when it comes to God's judgment, we already saw that God has a moral authority to judge because of his attribute. OK, um, now we're going to see in verses uh, three, second half. Of verse 3 to verses 8, you're going to see God's word emphasize that he has power. And he has power, number one, over nature and power, number one, over uh, number two, over human beings. Okay, so we need to know that uh, point number one, that God has the power to judge with, uh, judge with his power over nature. This is in verses 3b to verse 5. And second part, we need to know that God has the power to judge with his power over humans. Okay. So in light of this, let's look at the first part. Um, if you notice in verses 3b, verses 5, this is the first point for tonight's message where we see we need to know that God has the power to judge with His power over nature. Let me read again verses 3b to verse 5, okay? It says this, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging, avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath and he reserves wrath for his enemies verse oh wait oh man i cut and pasted the wrong one actually oh man i'm so sorry tonight i'm just all over the place okay verses 3b to verse 5 is this in the gale and the storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet he rebukes the sea and dries it up he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossom of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills come apart. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Okay? So we see this is, um, this is where um, you see that God has power over nature. Okay? Um, in Nahum chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. So he has the power to be able to judge. He's able to fill out that um, threat that he has the authority to morally judge. He's morally righteous. We already saw last week to judge sin because of, of who he is. He's an avenging God. He's, he's holy. He's slow to anger. All those things. He's good, right? And all those things is why he must judge sin. But now we see he has the power to judge. And here in verses 3 to B, uh, 3b to verse 5, the focus is actually that he has power over nature. Okay? Um, and notice when it says, I actually think in verses 3 
B, it actually described the coming of, of God. There is something called theophany. Okay, Anyone ever heard the term before, theophany? Raise your hand if you guys ever heard the term or, or react, thumbs up. Rebecca, you ever heard of the word theophany before? No? Okay. So that's good. My daughter says no. Theophany means God's appearance, okay? Um, there's various times throughout the Old Testament God makes his appearance. But when God makes his appearance, it's not often like where you see today. Some charismatic Christian says, oh, you know what, God? I met him. You're like, you mean you met him through reading the word? No, I met him. And like, what did he say? Oh, he was really cool. He was really nice to me. Well, when you read the description here, I actually think this is description of God com- coming down to judge. We already see he's he's wrathful. He's going to judge evil, judge sin. But now in the coming of God, it's being described as something that is deathly terrifying with his power. Okay, deathly terrifying with his power. First and foremost, look again in verses 3b. It describes God arriving to judge when it says in the gale and the storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet okay by the way there's a general downward motion okay um he's over controlling over nature and even nature is reacting to god's coming okay when it says the word gale in the nasb um some of your version uh does some of your version instead of saying gale says whirlwind does any of your version said that okay okay chris you're using esv is that correct Okay, I think the uh, New King James says the same. King James is the first one with the term whirlwind, okay? Um, And elsewhere, it's used in prophetic literature to refer to when God comes down. God coming down, um, again, there's parts of the Bible that says you cannot see His glory or you would die, right? And you cannot fully see God, and yet God still manifests Himself. So the way He manifests Himself is in some form of a cloud of glory, in both the Old Testament and I think actually in His second coming too, there's a sense of, of His glorious clouds also as well. Turn with me uh, to see an example of this. Let's turn real quick to Isaiah 66, verse 15. <coughs> Isaiah 66, verse 15. Uh, Caleb, I think you just joined us. Are you driving? Or this is a good time to ask if you could read Isaiah 66, verse 15. Give me a thumbs up if you could read. I should have asked earlier. Isaiah 66. Uh, Yes, Isaiah 66, verse 15. Yeah, notice here that when um, when it describes Isaiah 66 by way of context is describing um, this is um, the heavenly throne of God, okay? Um, and Isaiah is describing a lot of things in the future. And here when it describes God's coming, it's described that he's like coming in a fire, even riding in a chariot, okay? And he is what? Like the like that of a whirlwind. Okay, so do you see how this term, the same this is the same Hebrew word by the way that appears in uh, Nahum one three. That in Nahum one three in the NSB, unfortunately is this uh, translated as gale, but I would probably translate it as just whirlwind just to be consistent, so people see that this is the same word that's related to when God comes with His glory. This is often a term that is used to signal 
just the majesty and the glory and the power and, and dominion and all of that, okay? And another one, if you could, uh, if you're in Jeremiah, uh, let's turn to Jeremiah 4, verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. So if you're in Isaiah, the next book over is Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. Um, if I could ask Eric, would you be able to be the happy, motivated reader to read that for us? Again, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. Next reader I want to ask, if possible, will be Chris afterward, okay? Behold, he goes up like clouds, and his chariots like the whirlwind. Okay, so yeah, we see here, yet once again, it seems so similar. And yet we also see again, when God comes down for judgment... Um, again, the prophetic literature in the Bible talks about this. They're anticipating this, okay? Um, you could also think of another time where whirlwind is perhaps seen um, that we know of God coming down. Is remember um, when Job, after Job and all his friends were arguing about why was Job suffering, God, what did he say? You know, um, who is this? You know, he comes down from the whirlwind and God speaks, right? And what does he say? It was like, who is this that, you know, darkens my word without counsel, Right? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And he goes on and asks all these questions to Job to show Job doesn't even answer, doesn't even know everything in a natural realm. How could he then speculate on God in heaven whom he does not know and his reasons for why things are going on, okay? So we see here in uh, Jeremiah 4.13 again, this is to emphasize to us that this is God coming down that's being described, okay, in Nahum. If you guys could turn back with me to Nahum uh, one three again, okay. Nahum chapter one verse three. Okay, so we see here. Uh, we see here. Uh, not only is he described in the whirlwind, and notice it says, "In the gale and the storm, uh, is his way." So obviously he's in a path of some sort. Okay, and it says, "Clouds are the dust beneath his feet." Okay, so taken together, I think all of them as a compilation, is saying that God is coming down. And whereas in the, in the world when God is often coming to rebuke um, and also to correct and also to judge, notice it goes on and says, clouds are the dust beneath His feet. Okay? Um, again, this is the image of God descending down with majesty, right? Beginning from on high in heaven. And then when He's going down, it's also clouds are like what? It's almost like the dust of His feet. Okay? And I think this is pretty fascinating because remember, the book of Nahum, is ultimately about God judging which which nation or which city and nation. Again, it is to judge what? Nineveh, the city-state of Nineveh, which is the Assyrian Empire. Okay? When they would often march their armies, guess what would they would do? Uh, they would bring a big, glorious army, right? Filled with horses for chariots, horses for cavalry, and even uh, soldiers, uh, infantry. Okay, of uh, the heavy infantry variety, right, with mass formations. And when all those people are marching in the deserts, what happened to all those dust and the dirt? What happened, Rebecca? When the whole army marches, when there's, there's a lot of dust, okay? And that would be signaling even before the, uh, the army ever arrived. That would be a big trail. That would be a big sign to their enemies that, oh no, the Assyrian army of wrath is coming. Does that make sense? Um, Assyria doesn't send their army for show, 
Okay, they're not just there for show and hoping there's peace. That they saw, oh, well, there's a big overwhelming army. Everyone wants peace. No, when they bring an army over, it's a big logistical feat to be able to accomplish that. So when they're bringing an army, it's actually to punish somebody that broke away from their empire or to invade a new place where the other people, even if they um, are not under the Syrian empire, small empires or small little kingdoms next to them, another city-states, if they're free from them, if they're nearby, they say, hey, just give us tax, give us levy, right? And they don't, they bring an army over. So they don't bring an army here for peace. They don't bring an army here for peace. So when people saw the clouds of this Syrian army, how do you guys think most enemies feel? Enemies of Nineveh. How do they feel when they see its cloud? Rebecca? Scared, okay. Right? They'll be scared. They'll be ner nervousness. They'll be anxiety. It'll be all of that, okay? And I think when it says here, when God says, and clouds are dust beneath his feet, you might say, wait, clouds aren't dust, right? But this is God's, I think, giving the same imagery, especially really, um, I think, very relevant in talking about God who will eventually judge uh, Nineveh, right? God will judge Assyria. That the same fear they have, now it's going to be even much more of a terror, right? Where God himself is coming down, and it's not many, but just he himself is making the clouds like his dust. In other words, this is God coming down to bring judgment, and the response of this for the enemies of God will be what? Fear and total dread of what is to happen. Now, when God comes down to judge, what effects does it have on nature? What effects does it have on nature? Um, let's look at the first effect that is described in verses 4, okay? So there's going to be various effects you see of even before God even judges. Just God showing up to judge is already a scary thing. Let me say this again. God just showing up to judge is already a scary thing without even the actual judgment taking place, okay? So let's see the effect of God's coming down to judge. Well, God's coming down simply by itself. What is its effect on water is the first line. Of verse 4. Verse 4 says this. He rebuked the sea and dries it up. He carries up all the rivers. Okay. So the first line, it says he rebuked the sea and dries it up. Okay. Um, does that make you guys think of any point in Old Testament history where God dries up seas? Um, he rebukes it and dries up sea. Anyone ever think of anything this might sound like before? What do you guys think? Any moment in Old Testament history where God ever rebuked the sea and well, dries the, it up? The flood. I was going to say the flood. The flood? That's kind of the opposite. Yeah, he brought the sea, right? Instead of driving it up, right? He brought dry well, land. Maybe the, well, maybe then the crossing of the Red Sea? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Reading again, um, verse 4, uh, the first line. If you read it again and kind of remember what it looks like. Okay. Verses 4. In the first line in verse 4 um, says this, He rebukes the sea and dries it up. Okay, Remember what, how that phrase is being stated? And turn with me real quick to Psalm 106 verse 9. Okay, Psalm 106 verse 9. I think the last person I asked to read is, uh, the next one to read is Chris. Okay, um, After Chris, I want to ask um, Hui, if you could be my next motivated reader, give me a thumbs up. Okay, But let's turn right now to Psalm 106 verse 9 okay psalms 106 verse 9 
Again, Psalm 106, verse 9. Psalm 106, verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. Okay. Thank you for reading this. Um, Psalm 106, verse 9 I'm is... I'm going to get off and I'm going to get on the computer. Okay. Um, so, what we see in Psalm 106, verse 9 is actually it's the Psalms uh, way of explaining what happened with God uh, with the Exodus story okay with the Exodus story um, in Psalm 106 verse 9 it's actually the wording is very similar to Nahum chapter 1 verses 4 okay so at the same Hebrew wording I think what Nahum is trying to do I actually think Nahum is a short book but I actually think Nahum it's just like earlier, if you if you remember Jonah, Jonah also quotes what is when you read Jonah, the more you know Old Testament verses, the more it's helpful. Remember how he even cites attributes of God that exist in Exodus 34 verse 6, right? And actually, I think Jonah, the more you know Jonah, the more it helps you explain what Jesus is parallel. Do you guys kind of remember this? So in the same way, this area of, of studying the Bible this way is called intertextuality. Okay, say with me intertextuality. It's about how different passage or scripture relates, okay? That's a fancy way. Uh, the less fancy way, academic way of saying is cross-referencing, okay? But um, usually in academia, they don't say cross-referencing because cross-referencing could have a, um, a connotation of someone that's just, I don't know, teaching Sunday school and just pulling verses wherever, whatever, <laughs> in a way that does not really... Sorry. Say again. Can you spell it, please? Yeah, intertextuality is I-N. I is in India. N is in November, T is in Tango, E is in Echo, R is in Romeo, uh, T is in Tango, E is in Echo, X is in X-ray, T is in Tango, U as in Uniform, A is in Alpha, L as in uh, Lima, uh, I is in India, uh, T is in Tango, and then Y is in Yankee. Intertextuality, um, I think it's a much more broader category than just talking about how Old Testament or how New Testament used the Old. Um, in this field, is often you look at how things, um, not necessarily in the English, but in the original language of how there's phrases that are the same. That you, Sometimes in our English, we could read and think, oh, they're not the same because of the way it's translated, the wording are different. But in the, in the Hebrew, it's the same. It's repeating. It's echoing. Um, there used to be, there is still a big study, area of study, and how does the New Testament use the Old Testament? It's a fascinating area. It's one of the areas I really love and enjoy. It has implication for apologetics, implication how do we interpret the Bible, right? But there's now even another growing uh, a field, too, of how even the Old Testament uses the Old Testament. And Nahum is a small book, and as we go through this, you'll see Nahum is, for a small book, has so much literary devices, but also... Um, uses a lot of verses from other places that when you read this, it's making us as a reader, if you're supposed to know your Old Testament, say, oh, this makes me think, yes, God has been able to do these things. So when God comes to judge, it's not as if it's an impossibility. It's totally implausible that God could be like this. No, we've seen God in the Old Testament in history already be like this. So why would we be surprised when Revelation or Nahum or other places, it says, God will judge in the following manners, right? It's not just God just judge um, in the, uh, um, to Nineveh, something so unique. But God has judged even the Egyptian by what? With the parting of the sea, 
rebuking the sea and it dries up, okay? And of course, bringing the water to descend the judge. By the way, this theme of water judgment is going to be big throughout this book of Nahum, okay? So notice when God in the future comes down from heaven, his effect of just him surely showing up, you see the effect on water where it would even dry, uh, where the rivers even dries up, okay? Let's go to the next part. Um, and by the way, this is not just, just in case we read this and we think this is uh, something in the past and not future. Notice it goes on and says, he dries up all the rivers, okay? He dries up all the rivers. Has that ever happened in biblical history yet or in any history where God dries up all the rivers? We hope that day would not come because that would be very devastating for all of what? Life, right? When rivers are all dried up, and the sea is dried up. I think when it shows in verses 4, he dries up all the river that shows what? The extent of God's, uh, uh, of the devastation when God comes. Just his sheer presence is going to be what? Have an effect on water that it dries up, okay? So this is not talking about, you know, God crossing the Jordan River, okay? Because there was a time that God did dry up river before. If you remember when Israel or the Hebrews are about to enter in the promised land, in Joshua 4.23, he dries up the river then. But now in uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 4, he's drying up all the rivers, okay, um, with that. So we often think of God giving life, right? God is, a, it, it is true, he's a source of life. But this is trying to tell us that when God comes for judgment, it is no joke. He's His presence is so powerful. It is so, so powerful that He would even dries up water. Okay, um, this is the the magnitude of the judgment. And notice it dries up all the river. This is God's cosmic judgment. Okay, notice the effect on plant life. It goes on in the second half of verse four. Okay, um, can I just have um, Huey just read us again, uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 4, just the whole verse 4 again. But pay attention to the second half, okay? He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Uh, Bashans and Carmel wither in the blossoms of Lebanon. Okay. Thank you so much for reading that. Okay, notice the second half. It describes the second effect of the coming of of God to judge. Okay, and you'll notice there's three names, three geographicals named: Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Okay, um, anyone ever familiar with any of these names? I'm just curious. Anyone familiar with any of those names? Anyone familiar with Bashan? <coughs> The cows of Bashan, okay. I think you're quoting from um, Psalms 22, is Messianic prophecies. says, like, the cows of Bashan have surrounded me, okay. Cows are really big. They weigh a lot. Um, it's described the enemies are like big linemen, okay. The um, Psalms 22, if you know, is Messianic prophecies. I think it's actually, I don't actually think it's literal cows. I think it's describing not even soldiers, that's surrounding Jesus when he's dying. I actually think it goes deeper to say, you know, the spiritual realm. There's even demons that are so big. They're like cows of Bashan. Why cows of Bashan is because, we'll mention that in a little bit. The reason why is that is because the cows are big because in order for cows to be big, they're eating what? Areas that is going to be very what? 
rich, fertile in grass, okay? Carmel, anyone familiar with Carmel? You, if you read your Old Testament, you probably know that's where the laws was given and or or there's this um not not with Mount Sinai, but but like the laws when it's given to all of Israel in regards to saying, "Hey, do you obey this or not?" Okay? <coughs> <coughs> Lebanon. Tell me about Lebanon. Anyone know anything about Lebanon? What's their flag look like? Lebanon was, um, it was, well, actually, the country, there's still a country called Lebanon today. Um, and it's relatively the same location it was back then. Um, yeah. but it was, I think, one time a major empire, and you had to, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much more than that, though. Yeah. I don't know how much of a major empire, but. Definitely, it was some power because I think all those empires just near there is just kind of small. It's just the Levant. It's really the crossroads between the empire. But I think you're referring to the fact that the Phoenicians lived there. And the Phoenicians were people that are outside came in. And of course, Phoenicians were all over the area, various areas. Northern They're, Greeks. Think, yeah. Basically. So, they were, what is their symbol on their flag? Anyone knows? Ben Wars. Yeah. Do you know what's on their flag? It's like, I think it's like yellow and it's got the symbol in the middle. I don't remember what. It's a tree. Okay. It's a cedar tree. Okay. So, um, all these areas, you know what they all have in common? Why it's mentioned? It's not because of political reason. God's bringing this up is because all three's area, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon are actually very fertile area. And a very fertile area in the Middle East would have stood out. Now, we don't know because we don't know our geography were 2,000 years ago. But for them at that time period, I don't know what the equivalent would be. That would almost be like saying, I don't know, um, New York City or, or I don't know, you know, where there's a lot of people we know because of all those things. But back then in an agricultural society, people would have known the area of Bashan, the area of Carmel, and Lebanon because of how fertile, how much water these areas get, okay? Um, to talk a little bit about Bashan specifically, it's a plateau. So if you know a little bit of your Middle East, you know, if you picture Israel, um, you picture like, you know, like in the middle top of Israel, there's a little lake called Galilee, okay? So it's east of that, okay? Going away um, uh, east of that, okay, um, is the lake is Bashan. It's actually a plateau and it's very fertile because why? There were volcanic deposits there. So if you know anything of that, that makes the soil really rich, which helps it grow, okay? So they're very fertile, okay, in terms of land. It's, if you want to be a farmer, if you want prime real estate, where would you go? You want to go to Bashan, okay? Um, the other area is Car- Car- Carmel, okay? It's located the other side, so it's up opposite side of that, okay? It's near the coast, okay, uh, Mediterranean coast, um, and it actually has high elevation, Okay, um, and actually has really good uh, rainfall. So if you cannot buy any property, let's just say you're a farmer in ancient Israel, you want to buy some kind of property, you want to buy northern Israel. If you can't buy somewhere uh, property uh, to farm in Bashan, then would you want to go to Carmel? Yes, okay. And Lebanon, of course, probably is very what well vegetated because why? There's cedar trees that grows. Scripture mentions it a lot, okay? Um, ben Wartz, would you be able to turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33 to read that for us? 1 Kings 4, verse 33. 
1 Kings 4.33. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. That's what I was thinking of. Let's see what I want. Yeah. Um, he spoke... He spoke about plant life to from the city of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Okay, yeah. So we see here, right, that cedar wood is from there, um, from Lebanon. Um, so this is one. And there's many multiple references. Oftentimes, it's wide references because when Israel is building a temple, where do they have to get to? Uh, the wood from the fine cedar wood is from Lebanon. Okay, whether the first temple or the second rebuilding of the temple. By the way, even with the tabernacle, okay, um, some of the woods I, I think uh, are very rare, or, or um, that I think probably came from Lebanon also as well. Okay, so those are the um, areas. And yet, notice when God comes. Notice what happened. Bashan and Carmel, if you guys could turn back with me to Nahum chapter 1 verse 4. What happened to those area? What happened to those area? What happened to Bashan and Carmel? Abigail, what happened to uh, Bashan and Carmel in Nahum 1 4? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we see here, um, definitely, right, that it dries up, even though they're super fertile. Okay. And by the way, remember what caused this is not because there's a drought, it's God's coming to judge. Okay. And then if you look at Lebanon, what happens too? Lebanon is not in Israel, it's another country. Same thing that's going on. Okay. So I think what it's trying to say is, uh, let me make this point. What is happening here is not God already judging. But it's actually to show that the power of God is so powerful that even possess danger for life. You know how we talk about like Moses, if he sees the face of God, what happens to him? He would die. But then for sometimes you're like, wait, isn't God the source of life? And yet he could also take life just by his sheer presence. The answer is what? It's both. Okay. By his grace and his accommodating grace, he, he veils himself. And he veils even his glory, even in general revelation, though it's there. But it's not to the degree where it's going to be crushing and destroying of life. But when God comes, you see, it's all these geographical area indiscriminately. God coming, everything withers. It dies, okay? Let's also look at the effect on the ground, okay? Look with me in verses 5, okay? First line of verse 5. Um, we could have... Um, just Caleb, would you be able to read for us again Nahum one five? Okay, first five. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Yeah, so you see here very clearly that um Again, the mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. And I like this, how it begins. Um, you guys remember how, um, when we looked at Jonah, there's this up-down, up-down motion? But in this passage here, there's this up-going-down, right? From the clouds, going to the high grounds of um, of uh, Bashan, and 
you know, the plateaus and even Carmel and then it go and even Lebanon's much more higher ground than the rest of Israel. And it's coming down. Okay. So there's this up down kind of motion too. Same thing in verses five, right? It goes that mountains are quaking, not because there's an earthquake only because of him. Mountains don't usually shake for anyone else, but for God, for him. Okay. And notice it talks about smaller mountains, which are called what? Hills. Hills, they just totally dissolve. Okay. They're dissolving here. And by the way, in Hebrew, both the... So in Hebrew, it's usually verb, subject, object, okay? But when it moves the subject first, it's for emphasis. It's, it's, and this is exactly what happened, is God's trying to emphasize mountains and hills, okay? They're coming apart, okay? All these actions is to say, hey, these are what's happening. We're not even talking about human beings. There's no human beings in view yet. And this is what's happening to creation when God comes down to judge, okay? When God comes down to judge. And the extent, the effects extent is described in verses 5, second half, where it says, Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it, okay? It's saying that now the earth, the whole earth, this is what's um, being upheaved or, or being shaken up, okay? Being shaken up is what Nahum 1, 5 is saying, okay? And now, it, for the first time, it describes the inhabitants. People are also what? Are also being upheaved or being shaken or being upset also as well. Okay? Um, and even when I read this, I can't help but think Nahum in connection to Jonah. Did Jonah, did God use nature in any way to discipline or to teach people a lesson? Yes, we saw that, right? So same thing here. We also see that when God comes also as well, he's able to use nature in this way. Okay. So I think as application for our first point, the application for the first point, I think is we need to realize that God's judgment is going to be very real. Okay. And we should be comforted with that. Okay. Um, do you guys think God's judgment should bring us comfort? Do you guys feel the last two years has been really crazy? Anyone feels that? You guys realize in even the English-speaking world, the idea of religious liberty is becoming more and more of a problem. You guys, actually, not even religious liberty. Liberty, period, is more and more of a problem. I don't know if you guys know about that politically, right? Um, you guys realize John MacArthur uh, said, you know, he was encouraging a lot of churches that this week, this past Sunday, churches should make a special sermon about about sins that the world really likes, right? And, and and preaching this topic is because in Canada, you guys know there's a certain law that passes that says if you were to go, quote-unquote, use conversion therapy about certain people with certain lifestyles, that's alphabetical, all those alphabetical soups, that therefore it's against the law. But the law is so broad enough that can be used to target that, right? And even last night i was listening to a special european um a christian legal society was going on for a whole hour of a, of a special podcast <coughs> they were talking about how in england it's becoming more and more difficult to be a christian usually um, the art, way they will bring about persecution is often through the lifestyle thing, right? Where Christianity says certain lifestyle is sinful, 
right? If you like certain people a certain way, if we say the Bible teaches sinful, people could lose their jobs and all kinds of... In fact, they're overwhelmed. Even the Christian lawyers that's involved, they're overwhelmed in every way, okay? So in light of pers Christian persecution is coming... And by the way, Christian persecution, don't just think, oh, they're only coming because, you know, so long as I'm not a pastor, I'm safe. I think it's coming to every occupation, okay? You could be someone that all you do is just bake cookies and they're going to come after you too true or not you could be someone that's just oh I'll, i don't do anything i just only take pictures when they're happy for weddings or, or cakes in yeah cakes and everything else they're coming for you okay don't think it's sparing every field there will and when those things come around i think this is where johnny cash's song is wonderful right man the man is coming comes around right singing when he sings about jesus christ is coming i actually love johnny cash when he comes late right when he when he was old man he got his life to get like his melody everything just went better and it's deeper and biblical and everything right so i think we need to be comforted because our world is going to be even more wicked and more crazy okay so let's go to point number two uh, let's go to point number two is we need to know god has the power to judge with his power over humans this is in verses 6 to 8, okay? Verses 6 to 8. Just so I could catch my breath. Could I have um could I have uh Ben read verse 6? Eric read verse 7. Oh. Sorry, I'm still sick with COVID. Um and then um James is it oh actually I won't call James. I think he, the kids might be asleep. Uh, Caleb, could you read verse 8? Okay, Ben, Eric, James. Verse 6, 7, 8. Six. Six. Eric verse seven. Uh, Caleb verse eight. Hold on, what was the chapter? <laughs> Nehem one. Here we see, I think, really is the peak for our passage, right? Where he asked the question, two qu crucial questions in verse 6. Is, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Those are the two crucial questions that really shapes this whole thing, this whole passage. You guys ever have, hear anyone that ever says like, oh, when God comes to judge or when on judgment day when I appear before God and he's going to judge me I'm going to point a finger at God and tell him what about all those bad things he's done for me you guys hear people say things like that especially in evangelism especially college campuses sometimes, sometimes, yeah sometimes I write about atheists that say stuff like that or they'll say um, yeah they're like well you tell me not to just needed all this like they'll bring up the flood and they'll say something like that yeah verses 6 is really linguistically is the peak okay of our passage there's a peak is to say that in light of remember why do why do we see all of his attributes first 
verses 1 to 3, or 2 to 3. Why do we see then his devastating effect when God comes? Verses 3b to verses uh, 5 is to this point is to say, who can stand before him when he comes to judge? It's not like what this mockers and the scoffers would think that they could have all this. They would actually be quaking and be scared um, also as well. Because these are the rhetorical questions. And then there's a further reiteration in verses 6 of also the fact that he is a God of wrath. Because again, it says his wrath. Okay, using the same word wrath that appears earlier. Um, okay, now it says gushes forth like fire. Okay, it's now compared like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. Okay, again, further effects on nature. Okay, now intermingle in regards to the question of human beings. They've gone from the skies to the higher elevation, you know, um, really, you know, cushy water area to it being withered to now even down to the rocks that the rocks themselves are being broken up and yet in all of this verses 7 and 8 verses 7 and 8 actually gives us still an option there's now an option before us verses 7 is one road people could take and verses 8 is another road okay uh verses 8 is another road i'll look at verses 8 first which is the road that is most taken by most, is the, is the wide road, right? And the wide road of what? Destruction. Look at verse 8. It says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and will pursue its enemies into darkness. Okay? So here he describes that he will destroy everything. Okay? Um, and I actually think verse 8 is hinting of things to come because he will never destroy the whole world again with flood. But I think this is now alluding eventually to Nineveh. Part of Nineveh's destruction is because of a flood, as we'll see mentioned again and again throughout Nahum. So this is here he's describing that he will pursue his enemies even into the darkness. This is actually hints now a little bit of things to come with what? With Nineveh, because Nineveh's destruction did begin at night when there was a flooding that took place. Okay, so we see now going from the global to even being more specific, and that God is a God, He will bring His destruction. Now, getting more specific, it's sight talking about Nineveh. Okay, but yet we also know God is still merciful. Remember how, even when we looked at last week, when we saw God's attribute, there was one that still gave us hope. Right, where he's slow to anger. Now we see also in the midst of all his coming to judgment, there's hope. If you look at verses seven, it says, "The Lord is good." Okay, that's one of his attributes. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and you know those who take refuge in him. Okay, so what an interesting word for refuge. This would have been written to people that would have known about Assyria. Assyria with its evil would also scatter people and people would try to flee from their destruction when they're trying to siege city and kill people. And yet, when it uses that really loaded term, refuge, that those who find refuge in him, right? That those who find refuge in him, guess what happened? Those people would be what? Saved, okay? So we do have a choice in light of God's coming judgment, right? I don't know what our end times. I don't know all the details. I don't know when. Uh, I personally do not think the world will get better, right? 
Uh, I'm not post-millennial in that way. Um, but in light of this, if God could come back any time, we have to make a choice that we've trusted. And I hope every one of us do trust in him. I hope even this recorded sermon audio, put on sermon audio, I would also encourage those to say, will you trust in him and find refuge in him? Because it would be po- he will be very powerful to judge, but also powerful to save for those who trust in him. Okay.